You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Overseas Development Institute for this uh, event on UK investment in Africa. And we're very happy to um, have this meeting today so we can sort of follow up on yesterday's meeting, which was a really positive meeting uh, around Africa's opportunities to invest. Um, and we're very uh, fortunate to have an excellent panel. Uh, but before I, I, I introduce the chair, I just want to say two um, practical issues. So if anybody would like to go to the lavatory, then it's the end of the corridor on the left. If there's a fire alarm, please go outside. And um, uh, the collection point is, uh, is, is just outside on the left. Um, we're very fortunate to have um, Lord Paul Boateng <coughs> uh, chairing uh, this event. Uh, apart from being a great friend from ODI, he's got great experience uh, uh, in African trade and investment matters. Um, he is uh, uh, the co-chair of the uh, All-Party Parliamentary uh, Commission on um, uh, Group on Trading Out of Poverty. Um, he's also a former uh, High Commissioner to uh, South Africa. Um, and he knows a lot about trade and investment uh, in Africa. So, without further ado, over to you, uh, Lord Boateng, to chair this event. Thank you very much uh, indeed, Dirk. My name is Paul, Paul Boateng. Um, what we're here to do uh, is to engage, to engage with this topic of Africa investment, its development, the prosperity uh, of uh, Africa and the wider world, and how we, we make a difference, frankly. We make a difference at a critical time uh, in uh, the history, uh, not just uh, of, uh, of this country, uh, but uh, at a critical time in the history of the development of the continent as we look to the growth of a, of a meaningful free trade uh, area, as we look to addressing the demographic challenges and opportunities uh, that exist uh, on uh, the continent. And we meet in the immediate aftermath uh, of uh, a uh, summit that really offers an, a space uh, which we have to fill if we are to deliver on the expectations and hopes uh, that it has uh, generated. Uh, to do that, we are blessed uh, this afternoon with a really powerful panel. Uh, but the reality of these events, as you all know, is that if they are to make a difference, then they have to go beyond the panel to include everyone in this room. Your experience, uh, your vision, your hopes and expectations, and what it is that you and the organizations of which you are part uh, bring to the table. We're all activists here. We're activists for investment. We're activists for uh, development. And so the structure of this afternoon is going to be one that maximizes the opportunities for inputs from everyone. Uh, so. Uh, 
Dirk has given me my very clear instruction that we've all got to be out of here uh, by uh, 3.30 with the job done to deliver on that. And I see a certain amount of skepticism on the part of some in that regard, but it's going to happen. We're going to be out of here by 3.30. And so I don't just bring the experience uh, that Dirk has uh, outlined in terms of being a former High Commissioner and former Chief Secretary of the Treasury. I bring also this, which is a stopwatch. <laughs> Uh, and it will be it will be used. I can assure you. So I say that to the panel. I also say it uh, to you uh, uh, to you all. You'll hear it ticking ticking away. But without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Stephen uh, Stephen Karingi to deliver a very special message in terms of keynote remarks from Vera Vera Songwe, who you know is Executive Secretary of the UN. Uh, Economic Commission uh, on Africa. And Stephen brings his experience as Director of Regional Trade and Integration uh, for uh, that organization. Vera has been called out to a meeting with President uh, Kagame, uh, but uh, yeah, so you'll understand why she's, n she's not with us. But we're really glad to have you, Stephen. So over to you. Let's give him a round of applause, shall we? Okay. Good afternoon, um, everyone, and thank you very much, um, Chair. Um, so this message is on behalf of um, Vera, as the chair has said, our executive secretary. So I'm delighted to be here today among uh, esteemed researchers, partner organizations, friends, and colleagues. Uh, let me start by thanking the ODI uh, for inviting ECA to partner in organizing this timely dialogue on increasing UK investment in Africa. The changing trade and uh, investment contexts in the UK and Africa that are underpinned by Brexit and the African continental free trade area offer an unprecedented opportunity to introduce a more comprehensive Africa-UK trade and investment framework. ECA's uh, valued partnership with uh, ODI dates back to 2016 when we initiated a joint research program to produce evidence-based, relevant, and practicable recommendations for policymakers focused on the Africa-UK trade and investment relationships. Since this date, we have published a series of reports and papers and organized a number of events that have raised the profile of Africa within the British trade policy agenda and encouraged constructive and progressive thinking on how to advance Africa-UK trade. In celebrating this partnership, let me sincerely thank the UK Department for International Trade for their generous financial support. The focus of this keynote statement is a topic of utmost importance to Africa's structural transformation and development agenda, that is FDI. FDI brings with it capital, jobs, and links to the global economy. But Africa's experience is of other investment. Despite being home to 17% of the world's population, Africa accounts for just 2.8% of the world investment stock. According to our sister organization, uh, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, in 2017, the UK represented the fourth largest investor in Africa. The UK invested $60 billion in Africa, up from $46 billion dollars in 2013, and this is only $4 billion behind France, which is the world's leading investor in Africa. Frankly, investment in Africa is not always 
an easy task, particularly for investors who are less familiar with our unique terrain. Political risk, corruption, inadequate transport and energy infrastructure, skills shortages and policy uncertainty are among the leading cited challenges for UK investors in Africa. Yet, we are making progress on all these fronts. Four of the top 10 improvers globally in the 2018 doing business rankings were African and have a good reason to be optimistic about the future. Africa's GDP, as you have heard over the last two days, is forecast to grow rapidly from an estimated $2.5 trillion to as much as $16 trillion by 2060. And this is according to the ADB, the African Development Bank forecasts. Six of the top 10 fastest growing economies are estimated by the IMF to have been in Africa in 2019. In about six months from now, trading will start under the African continental free trade area. This defines not only a new blueprint for Africa's trade, but also the continent's entire long-term development agenda. 54 of the 55 African Union member states have now signed the AFCFTA, and 30 of them have ratified. Eritrea is the only country not to have signed the, and, and ratified the agreement yet. With this strong momentum behind the AFCFTA, we, soon, we will soon have an integrated African market of 1.2 billion people and with a GDP of 2.5 trillion. But why is the African continental free trade area a game changer for investment in Africa? Because we're talking about investments. First, the AFCFTA modalities commit the African Union member states to remove tariffs on at least 97% of goods imported from other state parties over a period of between 5 and 15 years. This ambitious trade liberalization is expected to support the development of African regional value chains and create opportunities for further integration into global value chains. Second, beyond tariff liberalization, the AFCFTA is also targeted at addressing key challenges to improving Africa's trade and investment environment, including the non-tariff barriers, standards harmonization, customs cooperation, and trade facilitation. These complementary measures will be crucial to boosting industry and enterprise-level competitiveness and reducing business uh, costs. They will also provide a framework for eliminating some of the market access barriers that are currently challenging British firms. Third, the scope of the CFTA is beyond a tradition of free trade agreement covering not only trade in goods, but also trade in services, investment, intellectual property rights, and competition policy. The AFCFTA investment pro protocol, for instance, will provide common rules for state parties to introduce harmonized incentives for attracting in incentives to accelerate development. This regulatory convergence on investment issues is expected to facilitate access by both African and foreign investors in a broader African market. This offers an opportunity for the UK and other development partners to diversify their trade and investment in Africa since it will make it easier to engage in African countries in designing transboundary investment projects. However, the main preferences and benefits under the CFTA 
are accorded to businesses that ensure that their production involves sufficiency transformation or value addition in African countries. The level of value addition or transformation varies by product as determined by the AFCFTA rules of origin. The AFCFTA is not about unfettered openness, but an invitation to substantially invest and produce value in Africa. South Africa and other relatively more advanced countries such as Egypt are already positioning themselves to take advantage of the AFCFTA by offering a gateway to the continent and an attractive destination for investors to establish regional headquarters. Smaller economies such as Uganda and Togo are also strategizing on how to use the AFCFTA as a platform for integrating into African markets and attracting investment into targeted sectors of comparative advantage. Beyond the AFCFTA, why must United Kingdom investors look more seriously at the African continent? The African market is a highly dynamic one. The population, as you know, is projected to reach 2.5 billion by 2050, at which point it will comprise 26% of what is projected to be world's working age population with an economy that is estimated to grow twice as rapidly as that of the developed world. This will enable large economies of scale and create rewarding trade and investment opportunities. Further, the rising African middle class will increase demand for higher quality goods and services. Of specific relevance to British investment, ECA recently published or partnered with the ODI to prepare a study on new opportunities for bilateral Africa, UK-Africa trade and investment. The findings of the final paper, which will be presented later in this event, the findings of the final paper will actually be presented later in this, this afternoon. However, I want to underscore that we identified a remarkable range of investment opportunities in sectors where the, the UK has a strong, strong comparative advantage. In particular, and I think this message came out yesterday in the summit, there exists significant opportunity for British investors in agro-processing, business and professional services, technology-based solutions in the financial and insurance sector, fast-moving consumption goods and services, education, and renewable energies. Now, to materialize these opportunities, African countries need to address barriers associated with the challenging business climate and infrastructure gaps and work towards improving skills so UK firms operating in Africa do not have to worry about importing talent from abroad. The African Union's Agenda 2063, the Program for Infrastructure Development in Africa, and also Accelerating Industrialization and African Action Plan provide a set of frameworks to support this process. The UK government and private sector can also play an important role in facilitating African countries to alleviate some of these market, this market access barriers. And in fact, the Department of International Trade is already investing resources towards this goal, which we are thankful for. The growing number of special economic zones also offer additional magnets for investment into the continent. There are an estimated 237 special economic zones in Africa, along with more than 200 single enterprise zones. Special economic zones operate in 38 of the 54 economies on the continent, with the highest number being in Kenya. 
stronger regional cooperation also creates scope for more ambitious regional and cross-border zones. For example, in 2018, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, and Mali launched a special economic zone spanning border regions of the three countries. Similarly, Ethiopia and Kenya recently announced the intention to convert, to convert the Moyale region into a cross-border free trade zone. So how can the UK-Africa investment relationship be improved upon to support Africa's development agenda? The UK government aims for the UK to be the top G7 investor in the continent by 2022. This goal is in close sight and only requires a boost of just over $4 billion investment per year. Yet, to make the envisaged boost of British investment in Africa worthwhile, a key challenge will be to diversify UK foreign direct investment, which is currently heavily focused on extractives and financial services sector, and also mainly in South Africa. At the same time, the UK's investment relationship with Africa needs to be complemented with a more comprehensive and development-friendly trade policy, which improves upon the existing EU economic partnership agreements. Brexit offers an opportunity to move beyond a focus on preferences to more effectively address issues related to standards, rules of origin, services liberalization, technical assistance and capacity building, industrial provisions and policy space. A development-focused Africa-UK trade partnership would build upon the UK's already successful and effective aid for trade program. As part of this, the UK government should consider stepping up support for African continental integration as underpinned by the AFCFTA by helping to connect countries through fiscal, regulatory, and digital measures. The agreement offers a tool for achieving development partner priorities such as structural transformation, job creation, gender equality, and poverty reduction. It is expected also to generate new commercial opportunities in agriculture, industry, and digital economy. In this regard, the Department for International Development efforts to support trade facilitation in Africa and recent decision to provide support to the African Union on the second phase of the African Continental Free Trade Area negotiations, which includes investment, are greatly appreciated. A fully development-oriented trade and investment policy between the UK and Africa would not just be in Africa's interest. Indeed, a unified, more visible and robust African market would also provide great opportunities for British investors and businesses. At the same time, a progressive approach to trade with the continent would allow the United Kingdom's new trade policy to support the attainment of the sustainable development goals in Africa through supporting job creation and income generation. As I conclude, the main message which I wish to emphasize is that the AFCFTA offers a potential game changer for the United Kingdom investment in Africa and an opportunity to diversify and enhance the return of UK investments. I say potential because tapping into this opportunity will require deliberate actions by both the British government, investors, and our leaders in Africa. With this in mind, the Economic Commission for Africa has joined forces with the African Union Commission to assist African countries to prepare the African continental free trade area national implementation strategies 
that are designed to identify new opportunities for diversification and investment, and also the complementary actions that are needed to overcome existing constraints to trade and reduce market access barriers. Although the AFCFTA is a continental agreement, implementation will take place at the national level, and the agreement must be translated and contextualized in domestic realities. And as you know, the UK yesterday hosted the UK-Africa Investment Summit. The UK is also Commonwealth Chair until the 2020 Commonwealth Heads of Government that is going to meet in Rwanda. Both have provided ideal platforms to strengthen UK-Africa trade and investment linkages and also facilitate private long-term investment into African economy, uh, countries. So in, in the midst of uh, political reprioritizations of a Brexit, I hope that the British government will not lose sight of the need to maintain and improve the UK's already strong and valued relationship with Africa, the UK's goal of becoming the largest G7 investor in Africa is a good one, but it is not ambitious enough. A boost of only $4 billion to UK investment in Africa will be required for UK to surpass the United States and France in terms of the value of investment into the continent. Africa and the United Kingdom must work together to go beyond this to double or even triple the current levels of UK investment in Africa. I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, indeed uh, for that, uh, Stephen. You can convey our thanks to, uh, uh, to Vera. Uh, one of the great advantages of uh, gatherings such as this is it's not just us in this room. So we want to welcome uh, participants, uh, fellow activists uh, from the World Wide uh, Web who are, uh, as we speak, participating in this event because as you uh, were uh, speaking, uh, Stephen, I was getting uh, remarks uh, from uh, our web-based uh, participants and they'll have an opportunity and they were moderately favorable, you'll be glad to hear, uh, but also had some, had some challenges too. Uh, for uh, the governments of Africa as well as our own as our own government. So they'll be participating in the wider discussion that we'll be having later on. But before we do that, I thought it was and before we hear from our distinguished panel, I think it would be helpful to have a response from the private sector, a contribution from the private sector, and we're very lucky to have with us Dominic, Dominic uh, McVeigh, the former chairman of, uh, of Gila Clothing, who's actually doing the business uh, of manufacture in Ethiopia, in Kenya, uh, and, uh, and in Ghana, and who's been a participant uh, in, uh, in, in yesterday's uh, summit. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we can have all the plans, all the wishes, all the commissions in the world, but it's about people bringing money, resource, skill, talent, expertise, a willingness to take risks to the market that will enable uh, Africa to grow and the relationship between Africa and Britain to deliver uh, uh, the prosperity agenda that we seek for all our people. So uh, over to you, Dominic. We look forward. We understand you've got a plane to catch, so you're going to be brief, um, uh, but we, uh, we think your contribution is an important one. My pleasure, and, uh, and thank you, Chair, and it's a pleasure to be back here at the ODI, um, where I've contributed to the research and also spent many a day, many an hour reading the research that the ODI has produced. So to get uh, my, my view is, is very much an honor, and uh, I hope, hope useful and beneficial to you all. Um, 
First of all, I think the fact that the Africa Investment Summit happened was, was a huge achievement and a, a huge step forwards for, for Britain and Britain's relationships with countries in, in Africa and on the continent. Um, I've spent the last several years as a, a proponent, a promoter of doing business in Africa. I, I actually lived in southern Uganda on the Rwanda and Congolese borders when I was 20, working with young entrepreneurs trying to help them get better better returns for their potatoes and to sell them not at harvest but be able to hold on to them for six months and the transformation that I saw within such a short amount of time for those communities was was beyond what I, what I could imagine and the potential and the opportunity the talent the skill and the belief in Africa is there unfortunately the investment hasn't been there and the investment hasn't come as quickly or as actively as one would hope so with that, with that in mind, and the AIS being present uh, in, in, at the forefront of the British government's agenda, and it's, uh, I think, since the, the election of the uh, Conservative government to majority, to see their first investment summit focused on Africa, I think sends a very, very strong message. But what else can be done and what must we do? And, and what have we seen happening at AIS beyond what may have already been in play or already planned? We've seen huge investments announced by Diageo. We've seen a number of commitments to, to, to several regions by major companies. But would they have happened with or without AIS? That's yet to be understood. But have we opened up the doors and uh, created people's eyes and visions to focus on Africa more seriously? I think AIS has certainly achieved that. But we mustn't forget there is still a lot of work to be done and a lot of development to be done by agencies such as DFID and its counterparts in other countries and regions. I couldn't trade in Kenya. I couldn't get my ships and my product to countries and customers if it wasn't for the investments that have been laid down by organisations such as DFID and their partners such as Trademark East Africa, who you're going to hear from more. But quite frankly, I couldn't get my goods out of the country or the raw materials in if it wasn't for those infrastructure projects. And there is more still to be done. Cost per mile of shipping goods out of Ethiopia is one of the highest globally. I think uh, almost 8% of FOB on uh, shipments outside of Ethiopia, 8% is, is on logistics, whereas China is, I think, less than 1%. I think it got drops down to 0.2%. So as we invest in industries such as the garment sector, productivity is always key. Now, what is the driving force for me to invest in Ethiopia and Kenya and Ghana? And what are those the driving forces that make the change? Well, ultimately, AGOA was our investment. All my shipments, all my exports, I manufacture garments. We do over $50 million in, in exports. And Heller has almost 6,000 employees in, in East Africa. All the goods are shipped to America. But we're competing with Bangladesh. We're competing with Vietnam. And we are, despite the trade war, these countries are competing with China. The reason they're still competing is because the efficiencies and the productivity and cost to trade is far, far less than what we see in the likes of Ethiopia. Because of that, some people, a lot of people, are still buying their underwear out of Chinese factories and paying very high import duties. So the, the benefit factor for Ethiopia is a goer. But if we don't get the cost per mile down, if we don't get the investment in infrastructure, and ultimately if we don't get the productivity up, it will be challenging for these economies to still remain competitive. So we then look towards the domestic market and what we're able to do. AGOA is potentially expiring in 2025. If we don't get the efficiency levels of production in manufacturing to those of what we see in Bangladesh and China, we all know and we all have our concerns about fast fashion and these industries. They move on to somewhere else, somewhere that's potentially cheaper to source from, somewhere that's certainly more productive. 
So we have to make sure that we can invest in the supply chains, that we can show attraction to investment into the communities, and also make sure that these countries have the infrastructure, the deliverables, and actually the people, are, 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 the skills are created to allow these countries to be productive and stand on their own two feet. So what can we see that needs to be done as a manufacturer in this space? Unfortunately, for every $100 million of exports a garment manufacturer may do out of Kenya, 70 million of that will go straight to somewhere like China or India. Raw materials are not available. It gets even sadder in the conversation when you understand that cotton is probably grown in sub-Saharan Africa. It gets even sadder when you hear that that cotton is grown in sub-Saharan Africa, shipped to India to be ginned, sent to China to be milled and spun and dyed, and then sent all the way back to Kenya to be manufactured and cut. So let's think of the impact that this is having, not just on environment, but economies, and also the loss of income. And I'm not an economist, but I often see reports of GDP growth and hitting almost double digits in some of these economies. But I know that that growth is also reported on the exports that manufacturers are making. So, for example, when manufacturers exports $100 million worth of goods, we already know that 70 million of those dollars never actually turned up in the country and probably went straight to the raw material supplier. So I'm a huge proponent of making sure that raw materials and the value add in the supply chain is domesticated. It's closer to supply. You have to think of garments in particular as a perishable. Clothing goes out of fashion just as quick as bananas go off, maybe even faster, unfortunately. So speed, efficiencies are all key to developing the, these economies. And as, as we take pace and we want a domestic production, we want revenues to be generated domestically, we have to go invest backwards. We can't just be looking to create jobs. We've created thousands of jobs. My, uh, the garment industry, for every $10 million you export, you might create a 1,000 uh, sustainable jobs. But to make those jobs worthwhile, to make sure there's prosperity, to make sure GDP is actually being booked in countries, to make sure there are tax revenues, we have to get more of the supply chain in, in, in action. And this doesn't just go for the garment sector. This goes across the board. You may have countries which are assembling vehicles, but ultimately it's probably still from a third-party country. It's like putting Lego together. Where is the value in that for Africa? A lot of these raw materials are probably mined in Africa, shipped to other countries to be produced and brought back. There is no value there for Africa. We have to create the value in country. And people often say to me, as an investor, why are you telling everyone this? It might put your cost of goods up, but ultimately I've invested in Africa because I love Africa. I believe there's huge change to be had. It is the most exciting continent. I think we can all agree with that. It has the biggest potential, and AIS will hopefully allow us to fulfil that, but we must grasp bigger issues and understanding that infrastructure is still key, cost per mile is still key, and making sure we have our supply chains domestically. Now, I will continue to, 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 to wave the flag and encourage you to invest in Africa despite the challenges, but this is a week of opportunity and excitement and to promote what is possible. Just to wrap up, we set up Hela in Kenya just over three years ago. We're almost hitting $50 million a year in exports. I couldn't do that in the UK. I couldn't set up an underwear factory here in in London, try and employ 6,000 people and do $50 million of exports, it wouldn't be possible. It was possible in Kenya, it's been possible in Ethiopia. And these are skills which we were told were not available. It, it, anything is possible and the challenge is really overcome. You don't go to Africa believing it's easy, but you go to Africa because it's rewarding and it can deliver. Um, so I'd like to, to wrap up on, on, on that, Chair, and I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity. I hope I've touched on some points which help you further to discuss the panel. Thank you very much.
I think you'll agree that was, uh, that was well worth hearing. And the question always, where is the value for Africa? Where's the value for Africa? Thank you, Dominic, for that. We now have uh, a really important uh, contribution. Uh, and I just want to say a big uh, thank you uh, to, uh, uh, to you, Max, and to your team here at the ODI uh, for all the work that has gone into this. Because we believe in evidence-based policy. Here is uh, the evidence, and we look forward very much to hearing you present it. Thank you very much, Chair, and, and also well extend the, the congratulations to the team, to Lily Summer from ATPC and to Sherilyn Raga that they were involved. Um, well, we started with this uh, research basically starting from the idea that there are challenges that both Africa and the UK uh, face. So basically we took at this at the issue of investment, not just from a development perspective, but also trying to think of what will motivate investors to come into Africa. Clearly, when we see of the challenges in Africa, uh, we can say we know that. I mean, one out of two people that are going to be born between 2020 and, 200 and 2050 are going to be Africans. And that means, not in the future now, that will be generate jobs for all these people that are going to uh, uh, come. And that means that, specifically in the case of Africa, means the transformation of its economy, moving into a higher value, higher productivity uh, uh, production structure that involves uh, competitive agriculture, uh, manufacturing, and, and services. Uh, that will require capital, of course, that will require stuff, will require hardware, but also will require expertise, require the capability of knowing how to do those things. Uh, they can be developed locally, and they are in many cases, but of course, I mean, the needs are in many cases now. And um, investment, foreign investment, is a way of actually acquiring those uh, capabilities. What are the challenges that the UK face? I mean, we, as I said, I mean, we look this at also the, the sort of uh, the UK side. What are the challenges? Well, 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 it's never the EU was a, actually an obstacle to invest in Africa or to increase the, engage, the engagement with the continent. Clearly, Brexit brought the opportunity of thinking about many of these things. So this is probably a positive thing about the whole process is the capability of thinking. We thought about preferences and things that can be done to, 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 to increase trade. Uh, so clearly, that is, 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 is one uh, uh, opportunity there. Uh, but of course, I mean, in the context of low economic growth and, and low returns, Africa brings a fantastic opportunity to invest. I mean, clearly, a return of investment in, in Africa is around 6.5% average, much higher than one in, 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 in Latin America, and also much higher than those in uh, developed countries. So clearly, there are an opportunity for the UK to uh, clearly for firms, for investors to, to, to make a, a, a return. So clearly, uh, and the UK is already engaged in the continent. This is the fourth largest uh, investor. However, what we saw is that half of that investment, half of that stock is on the extractive sector. And half of that roughly half uh, stock is basically located in South Africa and in Nigeria. So there are an opportunity, as I said, to look into other sectors, but also into other countries. So clearly, 
the need of Africa of diversifies economy, transforms the economy, and the UK of looking for, for to invest is what brings this mutual benefit within uh, agenda. So clearly, the trick is actually trying to meet the two uh, challenges together. And this clearly has issues. I mean, it's not easy, although it, is, it seems to be like going from here to there. I mean, clearly, there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of constraints there. So basically, what we did is we, we, we went to, 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 to Africa, and here in London, we asked British investors to, to tell us what are the opportunities, where do they see that is uh, uh, the business going to be in, in Africa, the opportunities, and also to see what are the, the issues. I mean, what are the issues that they face when they are doing businesses in uh, the continent? There are clearly uh, cross-continent issues that, that we are aware of. I mean, Africa is a, a, a challenging environment. We are not going to, to deny that. Clearly, the infrastructure is, a, is an issue that was, that was brought. I mean, uh, but it's not just the, the stuff, basically, the infrastructure. I mean, it's also how the infrastructure, the existing infrastructure, is managed. So, for example, in the case of Kenya, we heard loads of complaints about the operation of the SGR, the Standard Gate Railway. Basically, it's a serious issue because uh, uh, it makes, in many cases, costs more expensive, actually, than that, 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 that was expected. Also, in the, on the ener energy, although the, the availability of electricity in, in Kenya is good, costs are very high. And this is precisely because the structure of the market in, 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 in Kenya. Uh, but also here, other things quite uh, familiar relation to the, to the business environment um, doing the day-to-day -day business in, in, in Africa. I mean, thinking in terms of uh, uh, regulations that are introduced uh, without being consulted sometimes are hard to implement because they could have been first consulted those that are affected and are hard to implement because they weren't consulted. Many times there are ad hoc uh, 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 regulations. Also, what we, we saw in, 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 in all the countries is uh, a sort of an idea that they, 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 they think that they are targeted in a sense because they are big and foreigner, and that means that they have the eye all the time in compliance with regulations, and not, that is not the same with the rest of the uh, local companies, and that presents a, 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 an issue for them. And of course, what they see is that particularly trading within the continent is complicated, is costly. So what are the opportunities, what we see? Well, what we hear is a recognition in all countries about the talent, what we call the, the African talent. Many uh, uh, investors we rec recognize that as a sort of, 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 of advantage. I mean, that entrepreneurship that many, particularly the young Africans have. And that is, re that is revealed in many of the uh, uh, opportunities there. Agribusiness is an area for development. The UK is a, quite, it's a high quality brand in, in Africa. I mean, it's recognized the good quality of consumer goods, consumer services, but also on, uh, uh, of different capital goods. And there are opportunities based definitely in terms of the, the growing population and income, in, as, as it was said, on, on, on fast moving consumer goods. Manufacturing clearly is an area where the, 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 the Africa is very uh, uh, interest on, on, on attracting investment. Uh, clearly what we saw is that in the UK, 
there is a lot of expertise and capabilities to provide many of the services that modern manufacturing need. We are talking about insurance, that is a, 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 a sector that is not widely developed in the country, in the continent, but also uh, uh, business services, uh, uh, professional services, etc., that are needed in the uh, in the development of manufacturing. So, just to, to summarize, clearly what we saw, and specifically in the case of the CFTA, we saw a lot of hopes that the, the, the CFTA will help to address those of issues, and specifically when we talk about uh, uh, trading with other countries, uh, we saw that this, this, the CFTA may eventually untap investments in, in, in some African countries. Uh, but clearly there are areas that the countries need to address specifically, that this is something that the countries will have to do. The UK government on this side is uh, uh, a lot of things is already doing, and the summit is, has been a, a very good initiative. Uh, uh, but I think there are more things that are already this, the, the government is already doing to support the, the transformation of, of, of dealing with these issues in the continent. And finally, for uh, uh, the UK, for the investors in the UK, uh, Africa may be like China in 1980. It's that opportunity that you have to be there. And everyone would have liked to be at that place, to be there at the moment when that is booming. So uh, this is basically an opportunity, and for Africa, of course, is the opportunity of attract investment that can boost the economy, transform, and provide jobs for everyone. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure now to uh, turn over the mic to, uh, to Rachel, Rachel Turner, who's Director of Economic Development at uh, Diffit. Really glad to have you with us, Rachel. I know it's been a very, very busy time uh, for you, and we are mm. thrilled that you found time for us. So over to you. Well, thank you very much, and thank you. I think everybody has said um, warm words about the fact that we had the summit and about the summit itself. So uh, thank you. And I think um, Dom uh, and Stephen used the words confidence and opportunity, and Absolutely, that's what we were trying to engender with the summit. And when Ngozi summed up at the end, she said the over, you know, the overriding theme of the summit had been one of positivity. And we were so keen to create a summit that set out the opportunity uh, that Africa presents and the opportunity for mutual partnerships. And. Uh, if you uh, haven't had a chance to uh, read the Prime Minister's speech, you know, do read it. And the Prime Minister was absolutely clear that our ambition is to be the investment partner of choice for Africa and that we are looking to create lasting partnerships for mutual prosperity that will benefit the UK and benefit Africa. And that, I think that, that tone, that positivity, the use of the word lasting, these are all really important things to clock about what the UK government 
uh, was trying to achieve with the summit. And there was a real buzz, actually. And, you know, and there were, you know, uh, and the room was absolutely packed. It was buzzing. And uh, so we, you know, we were pleased with the outcome. We didn't just have one day. We've actually had uh, a series of events going right back, actually, uh, before Christmas. We had uh, a pre-event on, on agri-tech, agri-tech partnerships. We had an event on manufacturing. We had an event on clean energy. Uh, we had a fintech event last night. Those of us with the energy left did a fintech event. And uh, actually, today, um, is a day uh, on infrastructure financing. So I just wanted to say uh, a few words about um, two specific <coughs> things uh, in terms of things we were trying to do and things we're committed to following up. And there was a heck of a lot of other things to say. But um, first of all, on the um, manufacturing piece, I mean, Dom has gone. Dom has been a great advisor to me and to the department to really understand the manufacturing opportunities. And the things he said are things that we're listening to. Um, we did announce uh, uh, somewhere around the summit uh, uh, the fact that our Manufacturing Africa program that many of you know will be moving into West Africa. So we are absolutely determined to roll out and to support African governments with next steps on their industrial policies and particularly uh, in the manufacturing space and to take forward some of the issues that, that Dom was talking about. The manufacturing side event for the summit, actually for me it was, I, I really enjoyed it. We had uh, UK incumbent firms in the manufacturing sector, but we also had a lot of UK firms who were looking new at Africa. And there was a really serious conversation um, about opportunity, um, about how incumbents in the manufacturing sector had overcome constraints. And some of the discussions about skills uh, and skill levels in Africa, I've, this phrase that you just used, Matt, I've not heard that before, the Africa talent was, was absolutely in the room on the manufacturing sector with some of the comments about the UK incumbent firms, about the quality of the African labor force were just, uh, you know, for me it was just really exciting, the opportunity there. So I'm um, absolutely committed to engage uh, with next steps on the manufacturing piece uh, and lots of excitement in the room. Um, the other thing I wanted to say a little bit about was the investment piece beyond FDI. Mm -hmm. Of course, FDI is only one piece of investment. And the other piece that we put a lot of work into is the wider capital markets offer. <laughs> and one of the themes of the summit was the offer from the UK financial sector, and particularly the City of London. And we launched a new partnership with the London Stock Exchange uh, around the summit. And the London Stock Exchange is the exchange of choice for Africa. And actually, I think those statistics are not so well known, Paul. And actually, looking at the number of African firms mm -hmm. listed on the LSE, looking at the way uh, the London Stock Exchange has been <coughs> innovating new products to meet the demands of Africa, uh, ha has been eye-opening and very exciting for us. And uh, we, we announced um, three uh, new capital market uh, products and partnerships. Uh, one of them around really driving forward local currency financing for the continent. We in, in DFID and across the UK government, 
we absolutely feel that the next step in investment for Africa has to be investment in the currency of Africa. Too much investment is still in the main currencies. And that, that is not a sign of, of mature investment. So we launched a new local currency partnership. Um, we had uh, a Kenya bond, uh, a Kenya shilling bond listed uh, on, uh, I've lost track of where we are we today, Tuesday, on Friday. Uh, 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 we, we worked with the Rwandans on a, on a Rwanda franc bond, extraordinarily exciting, I think, to see uh, a Rwanda franc uh, bond being talked about at the London Stock Exchange. And we agreed a new facility with the World Bank's uh, International um, Finance Corporation, the IFC, to underwrite uh, corporate bonds in local currency, which is also really important. And you know, this stuff really matters because it means foreign exchange risk is not passed on to consumers. Um, there were two other uh, pieces in the um, capital market space that I wanted to talk about. Um, we also uh, announced a new development impact uh, bond fund. Uh, the UK has had a lot of experience with development impact bonds, and we want to share that with Africa. African countries have been asking us uh, how they can take forward mobilizing impact investors. The UK is home to a growing impact investor community. The UK uh, Impact Investment Institution Institute was launched uh, before Christmas, so we launched a new partnership with African governments uh, on impact investing and, and development impact bonds. And then finally, we scaled up our offer across Africa on capital market regulation deepening, and particularly the next steps in A, interoperability of financial systems to pick up Stephen's points about um, cross-border finance to back up cross-border trade, but also next steps in, in fintech and remittances and financial inclusion and financial deepening. And that was one of the biggest announcements in the package of, of, of support. And um, so, so for me, alongside FDI, and we absolutely recognize the benefits of FDI, the thing we'll also be taking forward is this much wider capital markets investment partnership, which I think really goes to one of the comparative advantages of the UK. And then just, you know, finally, what is this finance for? And um, the thing that we really tried to focus on during the summit was on infrastructure financing. My Secretary of State launched a, a commission on infrastructure, the uh, International Development Infrastructure Commission. It reported yesterday. Um, uh, it looked very carefully at how the UK can take forward next steps to support African governments with their infrastructure financing. Um, and we also committed to support Africa with next steps on, on cities recognizing that it's going to be cities that are going to drive future economic opportunity. And we were very excited to launch a new um, facility to help African countries access the best expertise we can on you know, the planning, the management, and the financing of cities. So um, Paul, those are just a few words about some of the things we did. Uh, it's all out there online. It's all there in the press releases in uh, summit conclusions. But um, it's great to have this opportunity to, to talk more about it. And, and I think, you know, it's always a bit tiring the day after a summit. So to have to talk about next steps is always a bit, oh, can't, <laughs> I, have a, can't I have a day off? But, you know, this is the right thing to do, to keep the energy going and to, and to keep driving forward. Thank well, you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh,
Rachel, not just for your, your energy, but for your passion and commitment uh, to, uh, uh, to Africa. You mentioned uh, the uh, Rwanda-Frank uh, bond. We're particularly privileged to welcome you, Claire, uh, Claire Akamanzi, the CEO of the Rwanda uh, Development uh, Board. Rwanda has been so important it's, it, at, this, at this summit. The board has been important in facilitating private sector-led development through increased investment and exports in relation uh, to, to Rwanda. We're glad uh, to have you with us, and we're glad of the contribution uh, of uh, President uh, Kagame. So uh, over, over to you. You've got seven minutes. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Lord Boteng, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm very pleased that I made it. I almost didn't make it uh, to this panel. We have a very busy schedule here. We have our president here. I'm part of the delegation. We had a very busy day yesterday at the UK-Africa Summit. But we also had our own Rwanda event today with British investors, UK investors, and uh, several meetings trying to build on the momentum that we're seeing with the UK-Africa Summit. So very pleased to be here, and I'm glad I could make it uh, to the ODI Summit um, afternoon uh, session as well. So Rwanda, um, in 2010, we attracted investments worth only about $390 million. Uh, last year, when we closed 2019, we had attracted investments worth $2.4 billion. So we saw a growth from about just below $400 million to $2.4 billion almost nine years later. And what is it that Rwanda has been doing or putting in place to become attractive for investors? And as you all know, Rwanda, I think when Rachel said it was very exciting to see Rwanda and Frank uh, on the London Stock Exchange market, you know our history, you know the very low base uh, that Rwanda was coming from nothing working, no infrastructure, no one was thinking about investing in Rwanda uh, before 1994. And so um, what is it that we've done to try and, you know, be competitive for investments in the country so we can reach the $2.4 billion that we've reached uh, today? I'll talk about a f maybe five uh, key actions that the government of Rwanda has been implementing to give ourselves a better bet at getting investors in our country, despite the very uh, strong odds against us and very difficult uh, baseline that we're coming from as a country. I think the first thing that our government decided to do coming from the genocide 1994 is what is it that we can do that can make us not lose our country after losing one million people? The best thing we can do for our people is give them a future that they want to be part of, that they can be proud of, and that they can be hopeful about. A future that incrementally we see some progress happening. So we come, came up with a vision. Everyone comes up with a vision. We want to become a middle-income country. But we also made sure that it was very clear what that meant in terms of jobs to be created every year, what that meant in terms of you know, investments to be attracted, exports to be made. We made it very specific. And every year, we signed performance contracts with our president. I, it's one of the, uh, the things that I, I, I have to make sure that I don't sleep until I'm, it's very clear that I'm meeting my target. Otherwise, Every once a year, the president will hold a meeting in parliament with all parliamentarians, and each of us has to account for what we did the year before. So making sure that our vision and strategies are actually being implemented very practically, but also being held accountable as leaders if we're not reaching those goals, is something that the government made very clear, which has really helped us to see progress um, uh, every time, every, uh, every year, uh, when we sit down to see how we're doing with our vision. One of them, uh, one of the big parts of that vision was how can Rwanda become, um, you know, become a hub through which uh, investors can go to the rest of the continent. 
we were, I mean, many people knew South Africa, they knew Kenya, many countries that actually positioned themselves in many ways as the hubs. But what is it that we're going to do as Rwanda to also make investors not look at our small country, everybody says it's small, 12 million people, but actually look at a gateway that Rwanda could be for the rest of the continent. So we started devising policies, strategies to try and become uh, a country that attracts capital that is going beyond Rwanda uh, to the rest of the continent. The second thing that we did is business environment, very, very important. If we were going to compete with countries that had been established, we were going to have to make, try and make it as easy as possible to do business in Rwanda. When this vision started 10 years ago, the president called a cabinet meeting and said, you know, Rwanda is ranked 158th in the world. We are the last. We don't want to be among the last. And I remember telling him, no, actually, no, we're not the last. Uh, we're 158 out of 165. There's some countries that are behind us. And I remember the president saying, that is the same as the last. Don't even try to distinguish yourself. You are the last, and I don't want us to be the last. Let's aim at doing better. And we started, you know, step by step, every year making progress, progress. So 10 years down the road, Rwanda is ranked the 38th easiest place to do business in the world, and we rank second after Mauritius on the African continent. And that has been a progress, progressive action over the last 10 years, trying to make ourselves different from the rest of the continent so we can have a better chance of um, getting there. We, if you enter just a business, you can do it here in the city of London. You go online, it's free of charge. It takes six hours. We guarantee that you'll get an investment uh, um, a company registered within six hours. And you don't even have to be physically present in Rwanda. We have an automated system online that you can do that. So those are the examples of what we put in place to just make it easy uh, to do business. And of course, we partnered with companies like Treadmark. And, and Frank will be talking about what they did. One border post, making it easy for goods and you know to move in and out of the country. And really partnering with people that have expertise to help us achieve that goal, I think, was very much central to what we did. The third thing was institutions. How do you create institutions that can be the interface with private sector? That is the institution that I lead, the Rwanda Development Board. Our government created a one-stop institution. If you want to register a company, you come to us. If you want to register intellectual property, you come to us. If you want an environmental clearance certificate, you come to us. If you want to negotiate an investment certificate, you come to us. If you want a privatization deal, you come to us. If you want a PPPP, you come to us. So it's one organization with the key functions of supporting investors. So you don't have to go from this ministry to that ministry. We, you, you come to us, and if we need the ministries, we'll talk to them and bring them. But we don't, we don't let you waste time talking to many ministries. And that's really what our organization uh, was put in place, and very much central in seeing the business climate improvements and also the number of investments grow uh, over time. The uh, fourth one was infrastructure. As I said, we had a, a vision, a strategy to become a hub. So every infrastructure that we're thinking and prioritizing was very much to respond to that need. And in some of the sectors that we actually picked, we were completely nowhere on the map. I'll give you an example. We decided in becoming an African hub, we decided we're going to try and be competitive in attracting events and conferences into Rwanda, something that is called MICE uh, Tourism. And no one knew Rwanda. There's this uh, ranking called the ICCA, International Conference Something Something Association. They run countries using how many conferences they actually attract every year. Rwanda was uh, among you know, the, the last countries that were you know, ranking in, in that map. This is just seven years ago. We said, OK, let's invest in an airline. Very difficult, very expensive. I remember the IMF and World Bank were saying, an airline? You need primary schools. You need, to, you need vaccination. <laughs> you, know, you need the basic things, which is true. 
we needed the basics, but we also knew you can't just focus on the basics. It's an ecosystem you're building. As you work on the basics, you're also really improving the other bets in other sectors. So we decided to do a comprehensive investment. So we, we built an airline, Rwanda Airline. No, hardly was there any, uh, there's only one airline that, that was flying to Rwanda at the time, which was uh, Brussels Airlines, because of legacy issues with uh, colonialism and all of that. But other than that, there was no airline that was flying to Rwanda. We decided uh, to, 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 to invest in Rwanda, and today we have about 10 airlines that come to Rwanda just because we, did the, we took the first step. Our own, our, own, our own Rwanda flies to about 29 destinations, including London. Uh, if you want to come to Rwanda, you can fly Rwanda from Gatwick to, to Rwanda. So investing in that infrastructure, we, we also put in policies, visas on arrival. Anyone from anywhere in the world who wants to come to, to Rwanda, you don't have to run around our embassy to get a visa. You get it... Um, when you arrive in Rwanda, we made that easy because we were trying to become a conference hub. And then uh, we also invested in the first five-star hotel. We didn't have any five-star hotel. Again, I remember the World Bank very much against the idea, saying you, you don't need a five-star hotel. You need, you need you know, housing. True, we needed that kind of housing, but we also wanted a hotel. And uh, we, we like to joke that ever since we finished building the five-star hotel, if the World Bank people did not get a room in the, in the hotel, <laughs> we'd be in trouble. <laughs> so it was a good thing for them as well as it was for us. So <laughs> and then we built a convention center that uh, accommodates 1,500 people. And in fact, we used some of the we put out a sovereign bond that helped us raise the money for the convention center. Having done all of that with the um, strategy of becoming a hub, Today, Rwanda is ranked the second country in attracting the most conferences on the African continent, only after South Africa. So you can imagine coming from, and these are real numbers, real delegates coming to, to do their conferences in Rwanda. The last one that I want to talk about is also putting, identifying those uh, target sectors, but also putting a team dedicated on behalf of government to take these sectors to fruition. So we have um, a, what we call a deal-focused team in an, an accelerator within the RDB. It's um, our team that works on that, but we also have ministries that work in, with our team. But these are the deal-focused people who, you know, they talk deals with investors. When investors come, you can't put, we've, we've learned that you can't just say I have, you know, a tax structure or an investment structure that is one-size-fits-all. We've seen that for some investors, we actually have to very, be very specific and do structuring with them, identifying the sectors we want, but also really sitting down with them and trying to see to build something that works you know, in the country because it's not always that obvious. One last example that I want to give in line with that is uh, Rwanda decided to become a proof of concept country most recently. We said, look, many innovations are happening out there. People are looking for where to test these innovations. Uh, how can we create Rwanda as that laboratory where we'll give you the conditions that you can start a business so easily? Rwanda is very safe, among the safest countries uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the continent, but also the world. We're ranked fifth safest, according to the World Economic Forum, in the world. Um, you know, corruption, hardly there, very low levels of corruption. So we've built all of this. But then how do we also build a technology base where people can come and try their technologies or innovations? We did that. We started with a company called Zipline. They do drones. They had developed a prototype in the U.S. in Silicon Valley. They wanted to use drones to supply blood or medical emergencies. They didn't do that in the U.S. because the U.S. didn't have regulations ready. They came to us. We didn't have regulations either, but we said, let's sit down. Let's learn together. Let's put regulations. Let's try it on our airspace. And today, having been very successful in Rwanda, they've already done so in Ghana. They are supplying blood in Ghana. They're negotiating contracts in Tanzania and Zimbabwe. So that is who we want to be as Rwanda. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, indeed, uh, Claire. And you've 
you've also invested in Arsenal Football Club. Uh, and I hope that proves ultimately to be a successful investment as your to, investment. We will see tonight with Chelsea. <laughs> we will see tonight. Uh, I'm sure it will pay dividends in the, in the end. Um, thank you for that, and thank you for making time for us. Uh, you mentioned Trademark uh, East Africa, and uh, it, it's a great uh, pleasure to have you with us, uh, Frank. You bring a, a, a breadth of experience, and you're from uh, an, an institution whose origins lie in the Africa Commission. I remember it very, very well. I remember its launch uh, at uh, Cape Town uh, WEF, uh, and you've done great things ever since, and we look forward to hearing uh, more and your predictions for the future. Thanks very much, uh, Chair. And uh, may I say it's a real pleasure to be here today. Uh, thanks so much to ODI and uh, well done to the UK government. I thought that was a really positive AIS and, and uh, the energy in the room was really quite something. And Claire, I'm glad to tell you as well that I'm an Arsenal supporter. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> just, <Sorry. laughs> it does feel a bit like that sometimes, doesn't it? Um, but I mean, I th think I think with with uh, I mean, first of all, just to say, I thought the the report the the paper that was put together was really interesting and a lot of uh, quite interesting facts there. Some things that I'll come back to in terms of the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya because I think that's an important issue. But I mean, just to say a bit about you know, one of the things that came across in the, the report was really the importance of dealing with high trade costs. Okay, and something that we focused on now for the last ten years and and as Claire said and others, you know, we do a lot of work on trying to reduce the frictions of moving goods across border, borders, but also port reform, because ports are a big border if you think about it. So there's been a lot of progress made um, with Rwanda, for example, where the average time to get through a border has fallen by about 70%. And although Mombasa isn't an easy port to get through, there has been improvement over the last 10 years, broadly a 50% decline through the port itself. So these, these, I think, are very credible things that can be done. Um, but I mean, I think really addressing the question, what can be done now to boost investment and trade? And I totally agree with Stephen um, and I guess, you know, Vera, um, of what you said about the opportunities with the new trade agreements. And uh, I know this is something Rachel and I have discussed. There's a lot of potential for the UK to make this a very pro-trade deal. Rules of origin issues you mentioned, standards. Really, it's the, the, the cost of market entry for a lot of African firms is very high, and I think the UK can really um, potentially make a really pro-development trade agreements. And, uh, and, and I know that this is something, Rachel, you and, and, and the teams are, are looking at, but I think it's important to say, and I think particularly the rules of origin, when we're talking about manufacturing, have, have potentially a very large impact. So I just sort of park that there, but I think from a policy perspective, I, 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 really, I really agree with that a lot. But I, I also think there's, you know, if you really, there's a great opportunity out there. And we talked about it on the panel yesterday at the AIS, was really the, the continental free trade area. And you, you talked about that again, Stephen. And I, I do think the, the CFTA, the AFCFTA, offers big opportunities. Um, however, it will, will take a lot of effort and time to make sure that it happens. And we, what we want to avoid is a trade agreement that isn't used. So I, I think, you know, it's really going to be about making it possible to trade by removing trade barriers, which are very substantial. But I, I really remain very optimistic that it is a, there's a huge opportunity. And the market size that's offered, I mean, Stephen talked about, so, you know, potentially more than 2 billion people over the next 20 years, growing middle class. 
and great opportunities. And I think in sectors, and I thought, Max, your paper was interesting that, you know, really the UK focus has been on extractives and financial services. And I think there's a lot more opportunity for investment in sectors like logistics, low-cost housing, uh, agro, uh, processing. Uh, I could go on. But clearly also renewables. And it, it's important to think about that. So say all of that, but I, I mean, I, what I wanted to say, I guess, was that it's quite important that we continue the efforts to reduce problems with trade barriers, okay? And they are still very substantial. I mean, I've, I've, I've been lucky, and I thank the UK government for all the support over the years, because it's really uh, allowed this to happen. But I mean, trade costs in East Africa have fallen by 40%, but hell, it needs to fall by another 40% to be basically competitive with middle-income countries. So there's still quite a long way to go. The CFTA will provide, I think, a great opportunity, but what do we need to do? We need to still focus on reducing the delays at ports, at choke points. Infrastructure, there are still issues, and I don't just mean roads, increasingly railways. And I mean, you know, you mentioned the SGR in Kenya. I know Graham Shaw's in the audience. Um, the inefficiency now of the railhead into Nairobi at Mbakasi is driving more costs than actually at the port. So these are sort of, you know, the, the problems do actually change. And we need to think increasingly about the intermodal aspects of the infrastructure and potentially more of that infrastructure being developed and delivered through PPP arrangements with fiscal space uh, declining. So those choke, po choke points need to be looked at and uh, increasingly uh, you know, they, they are holding back trade. The second thing I'd say is that, um, for example, between Kenya and Ethiopia, the custom systems don't connect. So that means that there's no way of transferring data across. So you have to stop every shipment. And we need to create a digital, and a, uh, digital connections across the continent, really like a digital trade corridor going alongside a physical goods corridor. And I mean, I th again, again, you, you commented on that, and I think that's something that I think is really going to be important. And one of the things that came up in this report was the problems of corruption and tax. And, you know, the, the issues around that, you know, there's an unlevel playing field. And I personally think increasingly automation of a lot of that is very important. And in Kenya, uh, we're investing in the new uh, custom system that we really will hope will reduce, and, uh, reduce problems in that way, but also increase revenues. Uh, the other thing, as I'd say, is, you know, we, we may go a long way to reducing tariffs across Africa, but one of the key problems that we face are non-tariff barriers. You know, it's a bit like that game of Caterpillar. You'd push them down and they reappear in other ways. Uh, NTBs have a pernicious way of reappearing. And I think, you know, actually dealing with having a proper architecture around dealing with them will be really important. And your report talked a lot about red tape. And I think there's a, a lot of potential to streamline further and put a lot of this on blockchain so that there's also increased transparency and confidence. If you look at certificates of origin, I was talking to customs, uh, the head of customs the other day uh, in, in, I won't mention which country, but in one of my countries that I work in. And the problem with counterfeit certificates of origin is a major problem. And then the delays associated with trying to verify, you know, it's like picking up the phone they have to do that. It's just incredible. You imagine how many shipments have those problems. Um, I think the, the, the final thing I'd say, uh, really, is around industrialization. I mean, I think, again, the wider 
um, the wider CFTA offers opportunities for industrialization. A lot will depend on the way the rules of origin are worked out. And, you know, I think, again, that goes back to the way, the role that the UK can play here. But increasingly, I think as well, what Dominic said is that if you think about an average shirt, like the one I'm wearing, it's not a particularly good one, but, you know, the cloth comes from China, the buttons come from China, you know, the only value add is the labor. And that needs to really stop. There needs to be much more of a focus in some of the, the, the backward linkages. I'm not saying it should stop completely, but there should be efforts to really uh, develop those backward linkages in those, you know, in the local economies. And uh, I mean, certainly the, the potential for that is quite, quite strong, particularly in the tier one and tier two suppliers around the garments industry, for example. So, you know, I personally think that's something uh, that should be looked at in terms of uh, some of the industrial policies. And, and perhaps, you know, maybe just to close, um, maybe we need to look uh, at the opportunity of the continental free trade area um, beyond just nationally based policies to something that's much more regional. And I think one of the, that, that requires quite a change in mindset because a lot of industrial policies are very nationally focused. I'm not saying that's wholly bad, but if we want to develop more regional value chains as a way of, of enhancing capability, you know, actually it's quite important that people get beyond the national. And UK firms can bring a lot of expertise. You know, there is quite a, uh, there's a lot of potential for that partnership with the UK, I think, to, to leverage in a lot of capability to help uh, some of those supply chains uh, develop further. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that, uh, Frank. And I, I think uh, to argue for regional economic integration and getting beyond the national in Africa at this time in this country is quite a brave thing to do. Uh, but uh, <laughs> perhaps, we, perhaps we, shouldn't, we shouldn't go there. But uh, there is a very serious point you make about you know, what is an industrial policy for Africa? What does it look like? You know, how, how do we ensure that we are able to answer the, the benefit, the, the, the benefit question, how does this benefit Africa? Well, over to you now to answer uh, that, uh, that question. We're really short on time. So what we're going to do is we're going to take uh, three questions or three uh, points, because don't feel you've got to wrap up your point in a question. If you're burning and dying to say something, say it. Don't dress it up as a question. We're going to take them in blocks of three, and we're going to go on for as long as I'm allowed to go on for, which it won't be much more than 15 minutes. So if I can take uh, you, sir, then you, and then you, the gentleman. Yeah, those three. Starting with you. Stand up. Yep. Um, I chair the British Chamber of Commerce in Kenya. Yep. Uh, Graham Shaw, I chair the British Chamber of Commerce in Kenya, um, although we're now reaching out to, to the region, including Rwanda, uh, Uganda, Tanzania, and Ethiopia. Um, points I want to make, and it may be... Um, a point you want to make. Point. The point I want to make. Uh, we don't talk about judiciary, and I think the judiciary is something that needs to be handled, um, and it needs to be handled pretty quickly. Um, it will frankly, remove corruption. Um, and if I were to tell you, and I'm hoping this is Chatham House rules in this... In this pro, uh, it's being broadcast across the world good. wide web. It is Excellent. not Chatham House rules. Chatham House rules. Um, all, I can, all I can say to you is that the number of cases that are open 
in Kenya today, you'll be shocked, is over 600,000. And that needs to be handled, it needs to be handled quickly. My proposal to the panel is that we try and bring in Commonwealth judges to help with clearing up that, uh, that backlog, and it will help a lot with policy, with prediction, um, and with corruption. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Rachel, if I can just give you fair warning on this. This reflects a question that's come in from the World Wide Web from John Gibb pointing to the corruption that exists in Africa, asking uh, what DFID is going to be doing about that, uh, uh, rather than funding, as he put it, uh, conferences uh, in, in London, a waste of time and taxpayers' money. Uh, that's, uh, that's John Gibbs's uh, view. Uh, so just to give you a fair warning, you're gonna, I'm going to come to you uh, on that. Then uh, you so happens to have the microphone and someone there who's going to get it in a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, you and Grant, um, Grant and Gutzel, uh, customs and tax consultants. My colleague, Mr. Gutzel, is behind, beside me as well. We've both worked in... Don't worry, we won't hold that Africa. against you. What's your point? Indeed. My question <laughs> is Chinese investment. To what extent is that providing collateral opportunities for the UK and and indeed European countries, to what extent is it inhibiting it? Thank you. Thank you very much uh, indeed for that. Uh, is your colleague the gentleman in the blue shirt? Oh, no, good. Then, okay, uh, fine. That, he's not going to get the microphone. The gentleman in the blue shirt, and then the, uh, the gentleman back there, you've got a microphone already? Over to you, and then the gentleman in the blue shirt. Yeah. 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 Basically, there is a, a very straightforward way of increasing uh, uh, for economic growth. And the low-hanging fruits for economic growth, uh, even way before uh, industrialization uh, and manufacturing for exports, is a basic need, which is construction sector, especially for housing, for low-cost housing. Yeah. And I've heard CDC has finally found some good idea of helping with low-cost housing in some country like Malawi. They are trying to expand in Kenya. And I've heard the CDC is also interested uh, to start in Somaliland in East Africa. Uh, so can you confirm that the DFID and the CDC, Commonwealth Development uh, Corporation, will be interested to fund low-cost housing in East Africa and Somaliland especially? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And then the quick question from you, sir, then I'm Thank you. going Andrew to the panel. From ODI. Um, I'm going to be very daring and mention President Macron at a meeting on uh, UK investment in Africa. But about two weeks ago in Ivory Coast, he announced he was going to liberate uh, Francophone West Africa from the, FC, from the CFA Franc. Um, within three days, Nigeria had announced it wouldn't join the new currency, the new, the new named currency, the, the ECHO. So I'm going to ask Stephen, to what extent is um, common currency alignment within Africa an important part of the integration, the continental free trade integration? Thank you. Thank you very much. Stephen, why don't we begin with that, the answer to that question? So, uh, the common uh, aspiration for common currency at the moment is not what Africa is aiming for. What Africa is aiming for, for now, is we want to work on issues of uh, currency convertibility, which is easy to work with, but much more importantly, there is a digital transformation strategy that currently under preparation and consideration by the African leaders. And the aim of that is so that we can be able to work on electronic commerce, whereby you have payment systems that do not actually require you either to have a common currency, 
but you can actually be able to clear the trade at the end of the day because you have interoperable systems. So that is where Africa sees an opportunity rather than trying to get uh, a common currency for all the 54, 54 countries. Thank you very much. Um, what's your view about this corruption question and how are you going to spend money on reforming the judiciary and all of that? Well, I think the uh, UK government's been absolutely clear that we continue to support African governments uh, and civil society, and particularly civil society with their anti-corruption efforts. Um, we announced last year a major scale-up of our effort uh, to combat illicit financial flows. Um, it was something that um, previous Secretary of State's uh, committed to, and we are continuing to put a lot of effort into tackling illicit financial flows. Um, we've scaled up our work with the Financial Action Task Force, and the announcement that we made at the summit about our work on financial sector regulation, a large part of that, and that's an offer uh, that we're making uh, across num uh, numerous countries in Africa to particularly work with the banking system, to take the banking system to the next level of, of robustness to meet the FATF standards, that are, are these standards for managing um, anti-money laundering. Thank you very much. You want to come in on that? Yeah, no, just, just to say, I mean, I, I think I agree with Graham, you know, that, uh, that uh, there is some uh, support to judiciary required, and particularly arbitration, you know, because let's face it, a lot of things go to court. Even, I know, if you're caught for speeding in Kenya, you go, you go to court. I mean, there's a, the, the courts are looking at an unnecessarily long list of things, some of, of which are very inconsequential. So I think an arbitration to weed out and, and actually look at the hardcore cases, uh, Graham, is probably needed. And, uh, you know, I think, I think you make a good point that needs to be taken forward. And I think on the corruption issue, I just wanted to really reiterate, like, for example, the customs management system that we're doing in Kenya, um, the pilots have increased revenue by 25%. What does that mean? That means that's not being leaked. So actually, the... the I think the, the potential for technology to take some of the discretion out of the equation is actually very strong. Thank you. Um, that, that's Thank you an that. important point. Um, the question has been raised uh, about, uh, about China. Um, Claire, you know, Rwanda has been in the forefront not just uh, of engaging in terms of investment with the West, it's also been very forthright in engaging with the East. Can you give us your view about the potential for China-UK cooperation, East-West cooperation on these issues? Thank you. On, on the question of China, what our view as Rwanda is, um, it's not an either or. It's not either UK or China or US or whatever. And, and we don't see, uh, we don't think the UK investors should be making um, decisions to invest because of China, whether it's good or bad for them. For us, our, our stand is uh, there's enough space for, 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 for China, there's enough space for UK, there's enough space for US, Russia. So your ability to give us a good deal is what matters the most. So come to us uh, with, a, with a deal, come to us. If the, if the best deal comes from China, we'll take it. If the best deal comes from the UK, we'll take it. So come and negotiate and, and bring the merit of that deal that you're bringing. And that's what matters, not comparing with China, comparing with other... And I think the space is there for all um, um, that, can, that want to invest. Thank you. If, you. if you don't mind, I'd like to mm -hmm. give a comment also on the question of corruption. 
I think uh, it's actually not very fair to ask uh, DFID what they're doing about fighting corruption on the African continent. I think you should be asking the leaders of the African continent. What we've seen in Rwanda is that fighting corruption is very much a political will issue. All countries have the right institutions and the right laws. They will tell you about the Auditor General's office, they'll tell you about the Ombudsman office, they'll tell you about the courts, the laws that fight corruption. But I think the most important component of all of that is their political will to enforce these rules and to, and to make sure institutions do what they're supposed to be doing. That, for us, everybody asks us, how was Rwanda able to fight corruption? Of course, we still have corruption in Rwanda, but it's a very low uh, scale. And the reason for that is just enforcing, making sure whether it's a mayor of a village or a minister or a prime minister, if there is an issue uh, of corruption, they will be uh, held accountable. And I think that has been very, very helpful. My last comment on the judiciary. One thing that has helped us in Rwanda, we had a backlog of cases, just like the case you, you shared. One thing that really helped us, um, one of the biggest reasons that our backlog would have lasted for another 100 years would be the genocide cases, because there were 2 million cases to be tried. <laughs> we had to come up with an innovative gachacha system where we didn't use the conventional judicial system that takes a lot of procedures, a lot of court you know, filing time and all those things that take a lot of time. We made it a very simple, we used eminent leaders uh, of societies to sit and those cases were completed. All the cases of genocide have been completed. For today, uh, all judges are given targets of a minimum number of cases they must hear so they don't waste time. So every judge knows that by the end of the year I'm going to be held accountable how many cases I had. If you don't give them those, those targets, you know, they can listen to two, three cases the whole year, and it's okay. And we didn't let that happen. Thank, Thank you. you. The question was raised about uh, investment in housing. Now, DFID, to my certain knowledge, is investing in water and sanitation, with a particular reference to the, to the urban poor. But did your um, research produce any, any insights into how decisions are being made by British companies is the extent to which they want to get involved in that sort uh, of, uh, of investment, design, architecture, large housing projects? Uh, well, no, among the firms that we survey, actually, we didn't find a lot of, of, of interest specifically on, on, on that sector. And I'm quite what we were quite focusing in some cases in the sectors, definitely we left out destructive sector in the assessment, but also we were looking, uh, because we think that is important in terms of economic transformation, is in, in, in those sectors that can help to create global competitiveness of, of, of Africa. Uh, and clearly we focus mostly on, 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 on agribusiness, of course, on manufacturing, but also on the services sector. Thank you very much. Now, have I got another 10 minutes or not? No, I have, I've only got five minutes on my clock. Have I got another 10? Yes, I have. Yeah. Okay, good. Sir. Hi, so my name is David Kayando. Uh, I work in the uh, tech sector. So um, I advise tech companies to uh, build businesses um, in emerging markets. Um, in Africa, the largest employers are, are the obviously enterprise, the young people creating jobs. To what extent is the UK government investing in the burgeoning uh, tech sector to make sure that there's a good flow of capital and also growth Thank in you enterprise that. and employment? Thank you, sir. And I'm going all the way back. This is a, the last round of questions. The panel will answer them as they see fit in their final remarks. Yep. Emmanuel Alana, Town Planning and Economic Development Consultant. I'm going to touch on two points. No, you're not. One uh, point. Okay, just one point. <laughs> the issue, I hope this opportunity will not create corruption smoke screen in Africa because investment attracts corruption. Because 
So what's your, what's your point? My, no point my, my point here is, provided the institu financial institutions here will help us to stop those measures, because if people over here have the same correspondence of mind with those who are bringing those money here, this will create a small screen. My second point. No, I'm sorry, sir. Second point. Is no, 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 I, we can't have it. There's a, no, we've got to be disciplined. Thank you very much. Good point, sir. Okay, my question is to Frank. My name is Dr. Mr. Wallace Lassie. I'm the uh, SME FinTech. We did a lot of business in East Africa in the previous, but what's your major investment for financial support for FinTech? Because we struggle from the bank of our banks from the UK because the risk is high. How do you cover that? Yeah. What is your challenge? De-risking bank loans. Uh, patient capital. We know about that, don't we? Uh, <laughs> any, uh, yep, gentleman at the back. Hello, uh, my name is Isaac Richagwenda. I'm from Rwanda, um, doing my master's in public policy here. Um, my question, obviously, is to Claire. Um, what, what uh, would you say Rwanda is, is ready to um, give the same kind of incentives in the creative industry than it's been giving, like in manufacturing, for example? Um, a case, an example, it would be Ghana last year they declared 2019 to be their year of return, and they had a lot of activities throughout the year culminating in a three-day music festival. Um, and it's said that th that the year of return brought in 1.9 billion US dollars in investment. So is this a sector that Rwanda is, is looking to exploit as well, the creative industry? Thank you very much. Uh, yes? Co-president of Sudan, British Business Council. And um, uh, the two really quick points, they're no, all intermingled, point. intermingled points. And one is that the UK uh, needs to take the moral ground in Africa again, uh, because it has stepped back in terms of its foreign policy um, and allowed you know, others to step in. Um, the second thing is- No, sorry sir, thank you very much. Right, sir, yes, you at the back. I'll keep it very brief. Um, Clearly, the focus has been investment, opportunity, and growth throughout AIS and this meeting today, which makes perfect sense. But have there been parallel discussions with regards to setting the standards for um, environmental social governance alongside the investments um, that are being made within Africa, which will drive the standards and hopefully the sustainability of these businesses? Thank you. Gentleman there and lady there. Yes, hello everybody. I'm from Senegal, uh, living in Brussels, uh, working for Gopa Group Consultant. Uh, quick question. What is the strategy for uh, Francophone countries in Africa? Uh, does language, uh, is language a problem for uh, investing in That's other countries? Thanks. Thank you very much. Over to you. Okay, uh, I, I'm wondering about the impact of the free trade agreement on the tax revenues for, for the governments because uh, currently some uh, countries take like about 20% yeah. or even more uh, tax revenues of the, because of the, uh, you know, the uh, trade tariffs. So I wonder how are we going to replace this gap? Internal revenue generation, are we going to be having more yeah. personal uh, taxation uh, rather than indirect taxation? What's the balance? Thank you very much. Um, is anyone dying to ask one? Nope. Okay. Over to the panel. Beginning with you. Oh, no, actually, no. Because okay. the, the last word should come from Africa. Beginning with you. Okay. Um, right. Um, on fintech, we, we don't actually work on fintech, but I think Rachel can, can talk to that a wee bit. But we do do work with SMEs, okay? And we're trying to, you know, some of the stuff I talked about, trying to make sure that they're more embedded in some of the export value chains is, is the kind of work that we do. 
Um, I uh, sorry. Yeah, the the issue of uh, standards for environmental and social standards, uh, something that I think is really really important, and you know something that we're definitely doing a lot with firms on, and we have quite a high standard of this in the infrastructure that we deliver ourselves. So I, I think this is something that is being looked at, and the UK has a good offer there, something that actually partnering with African firms can bring in a lot of expertise into the bargain, I think. Um, in terms of the tech sector, uh, you were talking about young people. One, one thing we think there's a massive potential for is e-commerce. And in a lot of countries, the regulatory frameworks don't exist. And certainly, it's very hard to get anything delivered, let's face it, right? So one of the things we are doing is pushing forward with the regulatory um, context or, or, you know, the regulations to enable the industry really to move forward. Some countries it exists, like Kenya and Rwanda, but then the delivery is quite a problem. So we want to actually do innovative things like work with the, uh, the buses to get things delivered, the post offices, obviously. So that's something that we're doing. And a lot of that is involving a lot of young people. So the tech sector, I think personally, has, has a lot of potential, but it's some of those things that are missing. And the impact on revenues, I mean, maybe Stephen will want to say more about this, but I mean, you know, certainly when countries uh, lose in terms of the tariffs, they can convert some of those revenues into other forms of taxation. Um, and I'm sure he'll say more about that. But not, not in terms of personal or income tax, it's more uh, in terms of ad valorem, for example. But what about personal income tax when you have a situation uh, yeah. in which uh, uh, they did a survey, didn't they, of one, of, I think it was Uganda, uh, yeah. they looked at the civil servants and they found that 5% uh, of the civil servants were actually paying any sort of tax at all, personal income tax. Have you got a position on that? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you there. I, th I personally think we need to rely on trade taxes less. Yeah. Domestic resource mobilization is what it's about. And Rwanda's actually done very well, for example. Dirk, you, wanted, you had a point you wanted to make. Um, oh, well, um, I, I'm not early on. I, I just wanted to point to this, the, the scale of opportunities that mm -hmm. are there. Over the last decade, uh, Africa's GDP increased by 35%, um, despite a, a crisis uh, happening. But UK trade, the level is exactly the same uh, in 2018 as it was in 2008. Mm -hmm. The same as the UK FDI. Stock of FDI was the same in 2017 uh, as it was a, de a decade before. Uh, I'm sure that uh, that Africa's GDP, both North and, 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 and Sub-Saharan Africa combined, uh, will increase again by much more than 30 or so 50 percent or so. So I, the, the words of um, of Unilever CEO last week was, "You can't afford not to be in Africa." And I think is it, so. This summit that we've now had is a it has increased the positivity around around Africa and African countries individually. What more can be done? Uh, what more needs to be done? Will will investment be, in, be increasing by itself? Um, so the private sector will take the, the, these opportunities, or is more uh, needed? So, wh what what is the plan for five years, hence ten years, uh, to be thinking about this? Good. What is the plan for the next five? So years? many questions. <laughs> so listen, what is the plan? You know, I mean, investment promotion agencies. We had the investment promotion agencies from the countries who were at the summit, uh, who came. Um, they had uh, a, a whole day uh, with us. They had another day uh, presenting. They were there in in the summit. And I think the question is, you know, 
what is the plan for the investment promotion agencies mm. in Africa? And, uh, and actually this study, which was uh, partly a partnership with the UK Department for International Trade, I mean, the Department <laughs> yeah. for International Trade is the UK's Inward Investment Promotion Agency, and and I think that growing partnership is 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 really really important. So um, you know, and I think the answer to your question has to be, uh, what is the support to the governments to attract inward investment? And I there, mm. there's you know, and that that's uh, that's there. It's growing. We've got growing partnerships with IPAs. We've had a great week with them all, and uh, we can talk more about that. On standards, the answer is uh, absolutely yes. That would take, uh, you know, another session. Uh, but there's a huge program of work on investment standards uh, and a huge appetite for a partnership between the work in the UK uh, on impact investing, uh, on taking standards beyond due diligence compliance, beyond the so-called ESG due diligence standards to the next level. Uh, of impact measurement, uh, an impact measurement towards the global goals. Uh, the UN Global Compact uh, had an event in the run-up to the summit where with our support they announced a new uh, series of offices that they are going to be opening in Africa to build the impact uh, architecture and ecosystem. So lots and lots of work on impact uh, and that's a great conversation and we could keep having it on tech. Uh, on fintech, uh, the Catalyst project, which is uh, the big partnership we have between the regulators uh, and also supporting matchmaking between uh, UK fintech and Africa fintech. Uh, uh, we actually uh, uh, announced uh, yesterday an increase to that partnership. Um, since uh, 2018, we've had a partnership between the Financial Conduct Authority and the regulators in Africa. Uh, lots going on in that space and similarly in the digital space, uh, the digital access program that the UK runs that supports uh, access for excluded uh, groups from um, from digital systems, but also a partnership on cybersecurity with uh, African partners, we also announced the scale up of that around the conference. So lots going on in that space and absolutely firmly committed to um, making the success of that. Thank you very much indeed. Max, yes. you've done all this work. Yes. What's your response to what you've heard? Well, I, I would like to be specific on the Francophone uh, point. Yeah. Uh, clearly, there are opportunities. Of course, I mean, British firms find it more easy and comfortable to be in countries with similar legal systems, same language, etc. However, we have cases of some British firms that have invested with one specifically in Benin because of specific issues that they found in one Anglophone country. So basically you have examples of British firms actually investing in Francophone countries. Although interestingly enough, Benin wasn't invited to the conference. It's interesting. <laughs> Right. But a lot of Francophones were. Oh, indeed, and there was so. Huge interest yeah. in that. I just mentioned it yeah. because I had a frantic <laughs> text from Benin saying, "Why weren't we invited to the conference?" And but you know, that, that, uh, there have to be choices. There have to be priorities. Uh, but it's it's interesting. To, it's interesting to to observe that someone did actually cho chose to go to uh, to a Francophone uh, country. Claire, the last word must right. be Africa's. Thank you. Um, Isaac, uh, what are we doing for the creative industry? This is a very important sector for us now. And the, the key reforms we've put in place is intellectual property rights. Uh, we've put in place new copyrights, patent laws, and we're enforcing them. 
uh, three years ago, if uh, a musician had their piece of song, their song played by a, a radio station, there'd be nothing that would happen to them. They'd just play it and, and, and without permission. Today, that's not possible. We've trained law enforcement. We've also put in place a collective uh, scheme to collect money from radio stations or whoever is using music unauthorized. They're fined. And now that culture is actually improving. We did the first payouts from this collective scheme to um, uh, musicians last year in 2019. So it's something that is really there to protect creative industry because if they make money out of it, people respect their rights, then uh, they'll be encouraged to innovate and to, to create more, more, more pieces. We've also put in place a Rwanda Convention Bureau. Their job, this is an institution with about 30 staff. Their job is to just go to the world and market Rwanda for events including concerts, uh, meetings, and any other types of events uh, to bring in the country. This is a full-time job uh, for, for these people. We've also established a film commission within the Rwanda Development Board, and the idea is to also develop the film industry in Rwanda, again, building from scratch. We hope that it can be as successful as the, the conference sector, but this is really what we're trying to, to put in place to support that sector. Uh, sustainability and environment, very important. We have a, we have a whole plan uh, on environment, protecting the environment, I think Rwanda was probably among the first countries to eliminate plastic bags, for example. Mm -hmm. It's been 10 years where you'll see no plastic in Rwanda. Um, but again, translating that into practices as for business is something we continuously promote, and it's really important. I, I must agree with you. On the question about uh, customs, taxes, and, and are we losing that if we go to the CFTA, we've done a lot of simulations, a lot of work, and maybe Stephen has the numbers, but as Rwanda, uh, we did ask ourselves that question, and we also saw the benefits that uh, a, a more open Africa would bring to our country, the opportunities for jobs, opportunities for entrepreneurship, uh, value chain growth. And when we looked at all that, it was a lot more important to us than just the customs money that we get. And if these businesses grow, they actually pay more money in VAT, consumption taxes, and other taxes that are a lot more important uh, than, than customs. Last point, we're hosting Chogam. There's a Commonwealth Business Forum, end of June. Very welcome. Tell your businesses to come for the Commonwealth Business Forum. And to uh, maybe add a last thing, our president announced this morning that uh, we're going to open up a requirement for visas, even those on arrival, no payment, no visas required, for anyone from the Commonwealth and also from the Francophonie organization. So come to Rwanda. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, indeed. Uh, for that, Claire, we couldn't, we couldn't end on, on a better note. You were asked about cultural industries, Africa's cultural industries. You are, in fact, a living marketing example of Ghanaian textile design <laughs> in, your, in your Kenti jacket. So yeah. we, we celebrate that. Yeah. But just uh, to end on, on, on one, one important note, um, we were asked the question, and it's an important question, what benefits uh, Africa? It's a very important question. And in our Akan culture, the culture in which I was brought up in, the eastern region uh, of, of Ghana, the cultural symbol extends right the way across Ivory Coast, Ghana, uh, Lome. We have something called the Adinkra symbol. Uh, you can Google it, Adinkra, A-D-I-N-K-R-A. And there is one particular symbol of the crocodile with one stomach and two heads. And a number of you will know that symbol. And we call it the, fun, fun, the Funtun Fenefu. And the purpose of that symbol is to demonstrate that the crocodile has uh, two heads and one stomach. Therefore, actually, the, the heads don't need to fight. Because both can chop, both can eat. 
as we say in West Africa, and yet the one will still benefit. And I think the message from the investment conference was what benefits Africa can also benefit Britain, what benefits Britain can also benefit Africa. And we help with events like this, with your participation, to find the sweet spot that enables that to happen. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.